Arthur Machen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. In the churchyard associated with Christ's church, an Anglican church in the southern section of the Caribbean island of Barbados, a stone burial vault owned by the Chase family played host to one of the more famous true supernatural tales of the 19th century. The coffins in this subterranean tomb were reputed to move, seemingly at will. The story of the cursed vault is one of the first supernatural tales I remember hearing and it's probably one of the first stories many researchers have heard. There's many different accounts of the story of the Chase Vault, similar for the most part, but occasionally differing in the finer details. In 1824, a local judge named Nathan Lucas asked Reverend Thomas H. Orderson, pastor of Christ Church, to pen his own eyewitness accounts of what transpired at the Chase Vault. The vault was originally constructed in 1714 for James Elliot, but it was never used. Some accounts I found, though, indicate that his widow may have been buried there for a time upon her death, although she was later moved. In any case, a Thomasina Goddard was buried in the vault on July 31, 1807, in a wooden coffin. In either 1807 or 1808, the Chase family purchased the vault. Whether this was before or after the burial of Mrs. Goddard varies by the telling. On February 22, 1808, an infant named Mary Ann Chase, daughter of Parliamentarian Thomas Chase, was buried in the vault. From the time of the Chase's inheritance of the vault, all burials were made in leaden coffins. The next burial was that of Dorcas Chase, an older sister of Mary Ann, on July 6, 1812 followed shortly by their father, the previously mentioned Thomas Chase, in August of that same year. A persistent rumor is that Thomas Chase was a man not well liked, and that Dorcas had committed suicide, owing to his cruelty. The disturbances of the coffins appear to have begun with the internment of either Dorcas, it was said in Orderson's account that when the vault was opened, so that his body could be placed within, the coffin of Mary Ann was upside down in a corner. If this were the case, it is said, the reasoning was that the ghosts of the others wanted nothing to do with the suicide. Other accounts state that the disturbances only began after the burial of Thomas himself, and in this case, the ghosts wanted nothing to do with such a hateful man. In September 1816, another child, Samuel Brewster Ames, was buried followed in November by Samuel Brewster. Despite the similarity in names, apparently the child and the adult were not related. Samuel Brewster had been killed during a slave rebellion on Bailey's plantation that April, led by an African slave named Bussa. He had previously been interred in another section of the island, and was later moved to Christ Church. The vault was not again used until July of 1819, 
when a woman named Thomasina Clark was buried there. Again, the coffins were disturbed. The remains of Mrs. Goddard's wooden coffin, which had long since decayed into unusability, were tied together and placed into a corner. There is no mention of what happened to her body, but presumably it was reburied elsewhere. Sir James E. Alexander was the first to recount the tale of the afflicted vault in a printed work, in his 1833 work Transatlantic Sketches. His account drew on Orderson's, as did all subsequent versions of the tale. As he says, Each time that the vault was opened, the coffins were replaced in their proper situations. That is, three on the ground side by side, and the others laid on top of them. The vault was regularly closed. The door, and a massive stone which required six or seven men to move, was cemented by masons. And though the floor was of sand... There were no marks of footsteps or water. The last time the vault was opened was in 1819. Lord Combermere was then present, and the coffins were found thrown confusedly around the vault, some with the heads down and others up. The Lord Combermere mentioned in this account is Stapleton Cotton, the first Viscount Combermere, the governor of Barbados at this time. Some listeners familiar with the history of ghosts may recognize the name as one appearing attached to a supposed ghost photo taken in 1891 depicting a blurry form seated in a chair. That Lord Combermere was the second Viscount, the son of this one. An account of the Chase Vault is contained in the memoirs of Lord Combermere, who as Alexander informs us was present at the 1819 opening of the vault. In a chapter of Rupert T. Gould's oddities about the Chase Vault, he makes somewhat of a to-do about the fact that Alexander states that the vault was last opened in 1819 when it was actually the following year. But, in my opinion, it seems that what Alexander was referring to is the fact that the last burial in the vault was in 1819. It was indeed opened a year later, but this was at the behest of Lord Combermere and was strictly a fact-finding mission. Combermere seems to have been a fairly conscientious investigator, since... As described in his memoirs of the Clark burial in 1819, in his presence, every part of the floor was sounded to ascertain that no subterranean passage or entrance was concealed. It was found to be perfectly firm and solid. No crack was even apparent. The walls, when examined, proved to be thoroughly secure. No fracture was visible, and the three sides, together with the roof and flooring, presented a structure as solid as if formed of entire slabs of stone, and when the mourners retired with the funeral procession, the floor was carefully sanded with fine white sand. When the stone was slid across and cemented into place, Lord Combermere pressed his seal into the wet cement, and it was said several other investigators made marks on the cement as well. So it was that the vault was reopened on April 18, 1820. The cement was unbroken, and the large impressions of the governor's seal were as sharp and as perfect as when made, but now hardened into stone. When all investigators were satisfied their respective seals were also whole, the cement was broken and the stone removed, but it resisted with unwanted weight, as Combermere wrote. Peering inside, they had managed to move the stone about a half inch. There was to be seen some black object close to the portal, Eventually, the stone was pushed aside, 
and inside, it was discovered that a huge leaden coffin was standing upon its head, with the end resting against the middle of the stone door. Though this coffin, which it required seven or eight men to move, was thrown from its central place and left in this remarkable position, yet the sand on the floor bore no trace of footprint or of having been in any way disturbed. The coffin of an infant had been hurled with such force against the opposite wall, near which it was lying, that a deep indentation had been made in the stonework by the corner which struck it. The Chase family immediately ordered the coffins to be removed and buried in separate graves, after which the vault was abandoned and has never been used since. However, Nathan Lucas's account disputes that Lord Combermere was even present at the Clark burial in 1819, contrary to the version of events in Lord Combermere's memoirs, which, admittedly, were compiled by his third wife who would not have been present on the island. Rather, Lucas claims that, being at Eldridge's plantation next to the church in company with the Right Honorable Lord Combermere, on a visit to the proprietor, Robert Boucher Clark Esquire, on the 18th of April, 1820, it became a subject of conversation at noon when the workers were coming from the field. We took eight or ten of the men directly with us to the churchyard to open the vault, and sent off for the rector, the Reverend Dr. Thomas H. Orderson, who very soon arrived. His lordship, myself, Robert Boucher Clark, and Rowan Cotton Esquires were present during the whole time. The annexed drawing with the references was made for me at the insistence of the doctor. Copied from one sketched on the spot by the Honorable Major Fink, who soon joined our party at the vault. I was present from beginning to end, and no illusion or deception could have been practiced. Whether the Robert Clark of this account is any relation to the Thomasina Clark, buried in the Chase Vault is unclear. The account of it in the Combermere Memoirs, however, may not be the most reliable. It seems to draw on an 1860 pamphlet called Death's Deeds, authored by a K. Redding, just as much as on the papers of Combermere himself. Certainly the detail about the coffin of Thomas Chase leaning against the stone covering the doorway originates in this pamphlet. To show how this was possible, Redding supplied a sketch of the tomb on the title page of a publication. It's just too bad that that sketch doesn't resemble the actual layout of the vault at all. A recent article in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, a publication, by the way, I had no idea it was still in production, uses the measurements and actual layout of the vault to show that the detail of the coffin leaning on the stone was plainly impossible. Death's Deeds also reprint, reprints a sketch by Robert Reese Jr., who may have been a lawyer and plantation owner, which delineates a completely different order of burial in the tomb, and also a, com a completely different configuration of the shifted coffins from those made by Fink, Lang, or Gould. In any case, a stone slab was present when the vault was in use, but not in the configuration claimed by Redding. It lay horizontally, covering the descending stairway to the Iron Gate. R.H. Schomburg writes in his 1848 History of Barbados what may have been the truth of the coffin at the door affair. According to him, the coffins, 
to the number of five or six were found scattered about, and one of the largest thrown on its side across the passage, so that, had the door not opened outwards, an entrance could not have been effected. Was the passage simply sexied up for publication? At any rate, with most of the apparent facts of the chase vault determined, the matter of the cause of the moving coffins remains debatable. That it was somehow the work of grave robbers or someone with a grudge against the chases seemed ludicrous. It was conjectured at one point that perhaps a tunnel was dug into the vault via the rear wall. Here, indeed, the wall is thinnest, but examination of that wall revealed no evidence of, it, of its ever having been tampered with. Human agency was apparently suggested quite early. As Nathan Lucas states, I examined the walls, the arch, and every part of the vault, and found every part old and similar. And a mason in my presence struck every part of the bottom with his hammer, and all was solid. I confess myself at a loss to account for the movement of the leaden coffins. Thieves certainly had no hand in it, and as for any practical wit or hoax, too many were requisite to be trusted with the secret for it to, be, to remain unknown. And as for the Negroes having anything to do with it, their superstitious fear of the dead and everything belonging to them seems to preclude any idea of the kind. All I know is that it happened, and I was an eyewitness of the fact. Another theory would be some manner of seismic activity. Earthquakes are occasionally noted on Barbados, but as most authors have stated, and I think most listeners would concur with, the notion of an earthquake so localized as a toss around the coffins in one burial vault, but have no other effects, nor even be noted by anyone, is a plainly ludicrous idea. Skeptic Joe Nickel suggests that the story of the Chase Vault was an elaborate system of Masonic symbolism. I will glo I'll gloss over that a bit, since I haven't seen enough to know exactly what he feels as symbolism. Certainly, we're, de we're talking about vaults, masons, and hammers, but, I mean, nothing leaps out to me as having a double meaning. Some action of water is also mentioned as a possibility. Certainly, this would seem on the face of it to be a fairly plausible one. Any water present would be storm water rather than groundwater, since Christchurch Graveyard lies at an elevation of about 100 feet above sea level. It was theorized that the lead coffins, airtight and full of gas as they were, could possibly float and be dislodged from their positions. But when this theory was put forward in a magazine article, a man named Jay Milner responded, I was there in 1856 and dined with one of the gentlemen who was present at the last opening of the vault, and I remember distinctly being informed that a simple precaution was taken when the vault was closed, which effectually disposes of the idea that any external causes disturb the coffins. The floor of the vault was covered with fine sand, which was found dry and unmarked in any way whatsoever, except by the moving of the coffins themselves. The general idea was that the gases generated in the coffins were the moving cause. It certainly could not have been water, as Mr. Arnold ingeniously conjectures. Mr. Arnold is quite mistaken in supposing that any of the coffins were found the wrong side up. Several people have also brought up the question of why, if there was such a significant amount of water present in the vault so as to dislodge the lead coffins, why did the wooden one remain untouched? 
and why did the bundle of wood remaining from Mrs. Goddard's coffin also remain where it had been? The notion of the gases of decay having been brought up, I should elaborate on that a bit further. Bodies in Barbados were traditionally buried in a manner somewhat different from what was usual in England, as described by Nathan Lucas. In England at this day, the body is first enclosed in a shell, then that in lead, and lastly the coffin of state without all, ornamented, etc. In Barbados, it is otherwise. The body is put at once into a coffin of state, etc., and that is enclosed in lead at the grave and is without the wooden coffin. G.A. Walker, writing in 1839, described the perils of using a lead coffin. It is well known to those engaged in burying the dead that when lead coffins are employed, the expansive force of the gas and the consequent bulging out of the coffin compels the workmen frequently to tap it that the gas may escape. In some instances, the coffin may be turned around upon its axis by the slightest touch of the finger. Within a few hours after the lid has been soldered down, and holes are frequently bored through all the cases over which the plate of the outer coffin is fastened, so that the gas may gradually escape into the room or vault in which it is deposited. When the coffin is not well secured, the lead will burst. A famous instance of the damage done to lead coffins by decay is the state of the coffin of Henry VIII of England. King Charles I, who was executed by Oliver Cromwell at the beginning of the English Civil War, was buried in the crypt of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour beneath St. George's Chapel in Windsor. After the monarchy was restored, his successor, Charles II, believed, falsely it turned out, that the executed king was not actually in his coffin. The location of the vault in which King Charles I had, was lost for a number of years and as a result, it ended up being April 1st, 1813, until the crypt was excavated and Charles's coffin was opened. The king's body was indeed there, but as witness Henry Halford wrote of the, co of the coffin of Henry VIII, the leaden coffin appeared to have been beaten in by violence about the middle, and a considerable opening in that part of it exposed a mere skeleton of the king. Some beard remained on the chin, but there was nothing to discriminate the personage con contained in it. The state of Henry's coffin is somewhat controversial, with the usual theory being that the coffin was improperly made and burst with the emission of gases from the king's body. However, others maintain that it was damaged during the burial of Charles I by some clumsy workmen. But then one could wonder why, if Henry's coffin was struck by presumably by Charles's coffin, why it had been struck with such force to break a hole in the lead coffin, why Charles's coffin was undamaged. A novel theory suggested by a passage in Schomburg's 1848 History of Barbados was some sort of lightning-related phenomena. He noted that both storms and lightning damage were exceedingly common on the island. Brian Riddout's 2018 Journal of the Society for Psychical Research article that was cited earlier theorizes that the charge from a lightning strike 
could some could travel downward and be distributed through the vault and thereby magnetize the leaded coffins. And as anyone who's fooled around with magnets know, they can either attract or repulse each other depending on which end of the magnet contacts the other. And he suggests that combined with a bulging coffin produced by the gases emitted by decaying corpses, so not lying perfectly level on the floor anyway, the magnetic action caused the metallic coffins to move themselves around the vault, resulting in the supernatural movements. But the Chase Vault in Barbados is far from the only instance of supposedly moving coffins. In fact, another vault in Barbados, the Williams Vault in Welchman Hall, has a similar tale associated with it. Built in the 1600s by an exiled military officer named William Azagel Williams, it was said that one of his sons married a Catholic and so angered the rest of the Protestant family. After the Catholic wife was buried in the crypt, it was said that the other coffins scattered themselves around the vault, with that of General Williams himself standing upright. England itself has, has quite a few instances of moving coffins as well. One was recorded in the annual register sometime around 1760. At Stanton in Suffolk is a vault belonging to the family of the Frenches. On opening it some years since, several leaden coffins with wooden cases that had been fixed on beers, were found displaced, to the great astonishment of many of the inhabitants of the village. The coffins were placed as before, and properly closed. When, some time ago, another of the family dying, they were a second time found displaced. And two years after that, they were not only found all the beers, but one coffin, as heavy as to require eight men to raise it, was found on the fourth step that leads into the vault. Whence arose this operation, in which, it is certain, no one had a hand. N.B. It was occasioned by water, as is imagined, though no signs of it appeared at the different periods of time that the vault was opened. Famed ghost hunter Harry Price noted in the end of Borley Rectory that he was told by Ethel Bull that several coffins had moved in a, in a similar manner in a crypt belonging to the Waldegreve family beneath the church at Borley, Essex. Not much more information beyond this is available, however. Yet another British account is noted by F.A. Paley, writing in Notes and Queries in 1867, addressing an incident which had occurred about 20 years previously in Greatford, Lincolnshire. He he reproduced a letter from an acquaintance who recalled the same occurrence. I remember very well the Gretford vault being opened when we were there. It was in the church and belonged to the Blank family. The church warden came to tell the rector, who went into the vault and saw the coffins all in confusion, one little one on the top of a large one and some tilted on one side against the wall. They were all lead, but of course cased in wood. The same vault had been opened once before and was found in the same state of confusion and set right by the church warden so that his dismay was great when he found them displaced again. We had no doubt from the situation and the nature of the soil that it had been full of water during some flood which floated the coffins. 
I dare say blank is still alive and could give the date, and I almost think blank saw what happened. I felt no doubt myself that lead coffins could float. We know a large iron vessel will, without any wooden casing, and I suppose the flood subsiding will move them. would move them. The vault had been walled up so that no one could have been in it. All the blanks in that account are the somewhat kind of gothic writing style that you see a lot in Edgar Allan Poe, where, you know, he's saying someone's proper name and just has like the first letter and then a line. Yeah, so basically you don't have any of the actual names associated with the story, which you could cynically say makes it kind of a dubious story. But, anyway. The Brown Vault in Kingsker's Well, Devon, was also home to some moving coffins. It is said that Colonel Richard Ellicombe, who had married into the Brown family, was a fat, disagreeable man who loathed little boys and pigs, and in old age boasted that he had never seen a boy or a pig in his life without hitting it. Wonderful fellow. He was interred in the Brown Vault in 1804, and it was said that whenever opened, Colonel Ellicombe's coffin would be lying on the topmost stair, the Brown family, even in death, wanting to distance themselves from this hateful outsider. In this case, the vault was also known to flood, and it's possible that water was to blame for these disturbances as well. Moving coffins were also noted from the Merrick Vault, Thangad Willadder, on the Isle of Anglesey in North Wales, but though I can find references to there being a vault belonging to the Merricks underneath that church, I can find no description of the actual disturbances. I've saved for last a famous tale of moving coffins from Arnsberg on the island of Osel, off the coast of Estonia. Osel is an old name for the island now called Sarma. The city of Arnsberg is now called Kurasar. In this city was a private chapel belonging to the Buxhoevden family. On June 22, 1844, a woman named Dalman was visiting the grave of her mother and had her horse tied to a post at the Buxhoevden chapel. She thought she heard some disturbance in the chapel, and when she returned, she found her horse in an inexplicable state of excitement. She noted it was barely able to walk, but it later recovered. She told Goldenstuba of Arnsberg slash Curasar about the event, and in the next few days, the same phenomena was noted by other visitors to the cemetery. These people called the sounds Gatoza, which is a German word that's usually used to describe the rolling of thunder, and probably gives you some idea of what the sound actually sounded like. Soon even the Buxhoevdens noticed the sounds coming from the vault under the chapel as they were gathered for the funeral of a family member. The horses that had been drawing the hearse were affected by the same fits of terror as all the previous ones. A few family members eventually made their way down to the vault and found that of the numerous coffins which had been deposited there in due order, side by side, almost all had been displaced and lay in a confused pile. Seeing no signs of anyone having actually broken into the vault, they replaced the coffins and left. An investigation was soon launched, and both the chapel and vault were examined and found to be sound. 
The coffins had again moved, and they were replaced, and ashes spread on the floor of the vault, the floor of the chapel, and on the stairs leading from the chapel to the vault. After three days, the investigators returned and found the coffins in disarray once again. Not only was every coffin, with the same three exceptions as before, displaced, and the whole scattered in confusion all over the place, but many of them, weighty as they were, had been set on end so that the head of the corpse was downward. Nor was even this all. The lid of one coffin had been partially forced open, and there projected the shriveled right arm of the corpse it contained, showing beyond the elbow, the lower arm being turned up toward the ceiling of the vault. The investigators later found that the coffin from which the mummified arm protruded was that of a Buxhoevden who had committed suicide. It was said that the disturbances continued even after this, and that, uh, and that eventually the other Buxhoevdens filled the vault with a quantity of earth, in effect burying the coffins. This finally caused the events to cease. On May 8, 1859, the tale of the Buxhoevden vault was relayed to Robert Dale Owen by Baron Goldenstuba's daughter. Personally, I find the tale to be rather dubious. It's nearly identical in every detail to the story of the Chase Vault. The disturbed horses are noted in some versions of the Barbadian tale. There are the suspicions of a subterranean tunnel, the scattering of ashes rather than sand to detect any entry, an investigation in which a local, local nobleman is involved, even the detail of sounding the floor of the vault with a hammer to determine whether it is sound, even the last grisly detail of the arm protruding from one of the coffins was noted in some retellings of the Chase Vault story as having been present in the coffin of Dorcas Chase, and recall that she, like this person, was at least widely rumored to have committed suicide. Add to that the fact that the Chase Vault story was fairly well known by 1844 from Alexander's and Schomburg's account, accounts, and I, at least, think that the entire tale might be a fabrication, simply a, a reskinning of the Barbados story. And that's the end of this episode. A list of the sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.